Welcome to Keith Knight Don't Tread on Anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Here are three social justice lies, racism, sexism, and homophobia. I want to start by defining social justice. Justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. The central premise of social justice advocacy is that all disparities in outcome between groups are proof of either nefarious activity or discrimination, and such an injustice justifies some people, government, coercively intervening themselves between voluntary exchanges between consenting adults. I'm going to argue that uh, these are all false divides, racism, sexism, homophobia, much like uh, instead of dividing people based on rich versus poor, Russian versus American, Muslim versus American, uh, gay versus straight, black versus white, old versus young, men versus women, a true divide in the world is people who achieve their ends peacefully and voluntarily through trade or persuasion, and people who advocate initiating violence or threats thereof to achieve their ends in life. The social justice philosophy is widely accepted by Hollywood, most human resource departments, almost every corporate uh, marketing campaign uh, brags about the embracing social justice. Most members of Congress in America will advocate some sort of social justice, along with almost every university professor and members of the corporate press. I want to start by listing some names. Let me know if you know what these names have in common. Dylan Noble, Margarita Victoria Brooks, Robert Sikon, Chad Michael Breinhold, Daniel Schaefer, Zachary Hammond, Tony Timpa, Kelly Thomas, Justine Damon, Ashley Babbitt, and Duncan Lemp. These are the names of unarmed whites killed by police, where it was very common that it was caught on camera, and the police were not punished. In the case of Tony Timpa, August 10th, 2016, officers had responded to a call by Timpa requesting aid for a mental breakdown due to the fact that he had not taken his prescription medication for schizophrenia and depression. Officer Dillard pushed his body weight onto Timpa on the ground for around 14 minutes after he was already restrained, and officers ignored pleas from Timpa that he was in pain and he was afraid he was going to die. Timpa's death was ruled a homicide due to extreme physical exertion. In the case of George Floyd, which was caught on camera, and there were tons of riots, tons of media attention, almost everyone knows his name. If you go to TikTok and type in the name George Floyd, you will get 5.4 billion views on videos containing that hashtag. And even if you spell his name incorrectly, you'll get 4.4 million views. That is the uh, collective number of uh, views uh, from all the uh, videos combined. If you type in the hashtag Tony Tempa, you will get zero results on TikTok. The case of Kelly Thomas, July 10th, 2011. A homeless man diagnosed with schizophrenia who lived on the streets of Fullerton, California. He died five days after being severely beaten by six members of the Fullerton Police Department, whom he had encountered on July 5th, 2011. Medical records show that bones in his face were broken and he choked on his own blood. On January 13th, 2014, Officer Ramos and Sincilli were found not guilty of all charges while the trial for Officer Wolf was 
pending. Uh, this was also caught on security camera. The case of Justine Damon, July 15, 2017, a 40-year-old Australian-American woman fatally shot by a 33-year-old Somali-American Minneapolis Police Department officer, Mohammed Noor, after she called 911 to report the possible assault of a woman in an alley behind her house. The case of Ashley Babbitt, January 6, 2021, killed by Officer Michael Byrd, also on camera. No riots, no trial. Michael Byrd uh, later commented on ABC in August of 2021, saying, I know that day. I saved countless lives. I know members of Congress, as well as my fellow officers and staff, were in jeopardy and in serious danger, and that's my job. This, These are uh, the words of a man who murdered an unarmed white woman. So what are we to make of this? Social justice advocates claim that the problem with police is systemic, institutionalized, systematic racism, and the way they prove this is by using individual examples and anecdotes of white officers murdering unarmed black people. But the same thing happens with white. So we both have anecdotes. What we can actually do is go to the empirical evidence, starting with Roland G. Fryer Jr. at Harvard University, an economist, from July of 2017. In his paper, An Empirical Analysis of Racial Differences in Police Use of Force, he studied 18 different cities in America and found that on the most extreme use of force, officer-involved shootings, we find no racial differences in either the raw data or when contextual factors are taken into account. Washington State University, in a paper titled The Reverse Racism Effect, Are Cops More Hesitant to Shoot Black Than White Suspects? They found that police were three times less likely to shoot unarmed black suspects than unarmed white suspects. So the science is conclusive. The experts have spoken. Racism is not a huge problem within uh, the uh, police force. However, because of social justice advocacy, people think that this is not the case at all. Skeptic Magazine did some research and found that overall, nearly half of surveyed liberals, 44%, estimated roughly between 1,000 and 10,000 unarmed black men were killed annually whereas 20% of conservatives estimated the same. So their guess was between 1,000 and 10,000. The actual number in 2019 police killed 41 unarmed people. Nine were black and 19 were white. The total number killed by all police officers were 1,004. This includes armed, unarmed, peaceful, violent, victim, uh, victimless crime, crimes that had a victim. Now, it's important to know that just because there is a disparity in the outcome of who is killed by police does not prove discrimination. For example, according to the Washington Post, most victims are young and male. An overwhelming majority of people shot and killed by police are male, over 95%. Even this massive disparity does not prove sexism against men by police because men tend to uh, commit more acts of violence. They have roughly 17 times the amount of testosterone women do, and young men uh, have more testosterone than older men on average, so we should see them uh, committing uh, the most amount of violent crimes and officers killing them uh, most likely uh, in response. 
Dr. Wilfred Riley at Kentucky State University published a book titled Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. He says, Serious empirical analysis done by everyone from myself to the Manhattan Institute's Heather McDonald to killedbypolice.net, an entire web resource set up to study this topic, invariably concluded that fewer than 1,200 people of all races and sexes are killed annually by American police officers. In a typical year, such as the representative year of 2015, roughly 250 of these people will be black. It is true that the black percentage of the individuals killed by police, 22 to 24 percent, is slightly higher than the 13 to 14 percent representation of blacks in the overall U.S. population. However, this roughly 10% gap is wholly explained by the fact that the black crime rate, violent crime rate, arrest rate, and police encounter rate are all significantly higher than the equivalent rates for whites. There is no evidence for any of Black Lives Matter's major claims. Social justice advocates look at the nature of policing, where one group has a monopoly right to initiate violence against other people. Imagine if the Catholic Church made its own rules and coercively imposed them on others and arrested people and caged them for not following Catholic Church rules, or if Amazon did this, or if Walmart did this, or if the Red Cross did this. Would the social justice advocate be saying, you know, I think there might be a disparity in the outcome of those people who are arrested? No. The problem is some people having this monopoly Right, and just like progressives always tell us, if there was, you know, a monopoly in computers, we'd get higher prices and worse quality than we otherwise would under competition, so we need antitrust laws. Well, governments having a monopoly on violence uh, yields the same result, worse quality and a much higher price. Also, not to mention the drastic power differential that is extremely unequal promoted by uh, the people who are always saying equality is vitally important and the state can arrest you if you disobey them. You do not have the right to arrest politicians or officers if they don't obey your rules. So, of course, social justice advocism distracts us from the heart of the issue. Another important example of social justice not getting to the root of an issue is when it comes to slavery. Slavery where one person claims to have ownership over the body of a peaceful adult. This is uh, enslavement. However, when they talk about slavery, it's always about skin color between the years 1619 and 1865. Turns out slavery is the least unique thing about America. We can look at the Code of Ernamu from ancient Mesopotamia, written in the Sumerian language, 2,100 years before Jesus. Uh, you can find seven passages that mention slavery. For example, if a slave marries a slave and that slave is set free... He does not leave the household. If a slave escapes from the city limits and someone returns him, the owner shall pay two shekels to the one who returned him. Code of Hammurabi, written 1,755 years before Christ, discusses the harboring of fugitive slaves, marriage of women to slaves, warranties on the sale of slaves, purchase of slaves abroad, later saying, if a slave should declare to his master, you are not my master, he, the master, shall bring charge and proof against him that he is indeed his slave, and his master shall cut off his ear. The problem with slavery is some people claiming the right to own the bodies of other adults who did not consent to such a thing. Focusing on skin color 
is not getting to the heart of the issue. We actually had a court ruling in America in 1655 titled Court Ruling on Anthony Johnson and His Servant. It says, On March 8, 1655, the Northampton County Court ruled in favor of Anthony Johnson, a free man of African descent, when he was accused of keeping an indentured servant as a slave. Turns out, if you look at the 1860 U.S. Census, there were a higher percentage of free black slave owners than there were white slave owners. Of course, there were far fewer because there were far fewer blacks. Again, if you're not getting to the root of the issue and all you're obsessed with is skin color, well, then you have no principled argument against all the slavery in Africa and all the slavery in uh, South America, all the slavery in Asia, or uh, the uh, Australian uh, New Zealand area. Looking at the height of American slavery in 1860, the U.S. population was about 31.4 million people, and there were about 393,975 slave owners. Again, these numbers are from the 1860 U.S. Census. This means roughly 1% of people at the height of slavery owned slaves, yet they are negatively generalizing all Americans, not just then, but their descendants today with this terrible crime. This is equally as terrible and bigoted as saying uh, all blacks owe all whites reparations because of black-on-white murder, black-on-white rape. It's just terribly bigoted, and uh, the Libertarian Institute uh, ab absolutely is uh, in opposition to that in favor of dividing people on the violence-voluntarism dichotomy, not the racial dichotomy that social justice advocates seem to be obsessed with. So when you use race as the central focus of your criticism of slavery, you're not able to understand that slavery, forced labor, or claiming to own the bodies of another person, you're not able to deal with actual injustices that exist in the world today. For example, Vladimir Zelensky, NATO's man fighting for democracy, has conscripted or forced labor uh, for all men ages 18 to 65 in Ukraine, uh, going back to February 24th of 2022. Um, also, they cannot uh, peacefully uh, emigrate from Ukraine. This is forced labor under the worst conditions, and Democrats don't necessarily oppose it because they never opposed slavery in principle. They just caught on to one arbitrary aspect of one segment of slavery throughout all of human history and have made it a racial issue. Historically... Uh, men have been uh, conscripted into fighting for the American military. Going back to the First World War, we can read here, it says, Attention, all males between the ages of 21 and 30 years, both inclusive, must personally appear at the polling place in the election district on which they reside on Tuesday, June 5th, 1917, to register for conscription. This uh, ended up being men ages 18 to 45, of the 4.8 million soldiers, 2.8 million were conscripts, men only, and there were 116,000 deaths as a result of U.S. entrance into the First World War. If you don't understand the principle of forced labor being immoral, then none of this strikes you as uh, terrible. Another uh, racial issue that uh, people will bring up is, well, uh, the only reason that um, people are pro-war in America is because in the Middle East, they're brown, and they don't care about killing brown people. The problem with this theory is that 
All of the hawks generally support a lot of mass white death wars. For example, the American Revolution, the American Civil War, the English Civil War, the Franco-Prussian War, the First World War, the Spanish-American War, the Second World War, the 58,000 white American deaths in Vietnam, the 30,000 white deaths in the Korean War. So uh, this theory uh, basically has no standing. But this brings us into the issue of sexism. Because here we have an actual example of sexism. This is a law that applied to men only and was forced to labor under the worst conditions. Now, maybe this could be an example of when we could embrace a concept of social justice advocacy and say that sexism is bad. Uh, however, I would still completely disagree with that. If the problem with drafting men only was sexism, then the solution is to start drafting women as well. But we're not getting to the heart of the issue, which is slavery. So in response to uh, something like uh, men are uh, conscripted and forced to fight under the worst conditions, get their limbs blown off, get post-traumatic stress disorder, feminists will talk about things like mansplaining. And to get to the understanding of how evil social justice is, I had uh, basically all female teachers from kindergarten through college, and a ton of what they said was a bunch of useless, trivial nonsense that would range from completely evil to completely boring. And out of those thousands of hours I spent listening to them drone on about pointless nonsense that we all forgot two weeks later, it never occurred to me to call them woman-splainers, as we can see on the screen. Women make up 89% of public elementary school teachers. That's a huge disparity. We must pass a law. Well, the fact that it never occurred to basically any of the kids I went to school with to refer to them as woman-splainers who just talk for a long time without saying anything significant gets to uh, the divisiveness of social justice. It never would have occurred to me to... Uh, describe teachers as women-splainers because there are a lot of women I love who I would not want to negatively generalize. However, the social justice advocate has given themselves a I'm not sexist license, and because they have that license, they feel like they can be as sexist as they want, and it never even occurs to them that they're being so. They say, I'm not racist, I have this license. Now, I demand that employers discriminate based on race under the guise of affirmative action. Just like Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham will say, I'm anti-terrorism, and I don't care how many women and children we kill in this next bombing campaign in Iraq or uh, Russia or Iran if we have to. Uh, they give themselves a license to do something intellectually, and then they, unlike the rest of us who are walking on eggshells trying not to be terrorist, racist, or sexist, they themselves become the biggest terrorist, the biggest racist, and the biggest sexist. That's a, another reason why social justice is so divisive in uh, every aspect of, uh, of our lives. Brian Kaplan wrote a book titled Don't Be a Feminist, Essays on Genuine Justice. In it, he says, we could take the social justice approach and apply basically everything to men. For example, he says, men are overrepresented at the bottom levels of society. They do most of the nasty, dangerous work, are much more likely to be homeless or imprisoned, and much more likely to kill themselves. Men spend much more time on the job than women. 
The law heavily favors women in child custody and child support disputes. Men are more likely to be victims of violent crime. Men are much more likely to die in combat. In fact, during serious military conflicts, they face military slavery, the draft. Finally, women view men as success objects. Again, these are all disparities and uh, ways that uh, people interact in society. Nothing inherently wrong with them. The point is that you can look at these disparities and just come to the conclusion that discrimination uh, exists and therefore the state should come in and uh, coercively respond. Uh, other uh, examples of sexism against men would be uh, baby genital mutilation called circumcision. Men... Uh, on average, have a higher workplace death rate than women, according to the Bureau, Bureau of Labor Statistics in 2018. There were 4,837 male workplace deaths. Women faced 413 workplace deaths. Again, that huge disparity does not prove discrimination or anything unjust. Turns out men are bigger risk-takers. When it comes to... Um, Things like car insurance. Men pay more for car insurance than women on average. Well, because men tend to be more aggressive drivers and get in more accidents. Young people, it turns out, pay more for car insurance than older people. Is that ageism? And must we have an equal uh, payment for car insurance legislation? No, because they're just riskier. When it comes to life insurance, men pay more for life insurance because men take more risks and end up uh, having shorter lifespans. This is mainly because men have a rate of testosterone that is roughly 17 times the amount that women do. Also, younger men have more testosterone than older men. That's why we see uh, propensity to commit acts of violence and uh, take huge risks. When it comes to things like the gender wage gap, of course they never mention that in 1963 Congress passed the Equal Pay Act, so they already got everything they wanted. It turns out we see a huge disparity in age. The average 20 to 24 year old has an annual wage of $38,000 a year, while the average 45 year old has an annual wage of $64,428 a year. That is a huge disparity. The problem is you're just lumping groups together and you're not accounting for certain things like the amount of skills these people have, the experience they have, the type of job they have, the number of hours worked, or the value created. If I have an OnlyFans and a very good-looking woman has an OnlyFans, we might do the same work, but we won't necessarily create the same value for customers, so we'll have different wages. There is nothing wrong with that. Turns out, even when you look further into the uh, wage disparities, you would think that if America was a white supremacist society, certainly whites would be at the top and everyone else would be far below them. As uh, Thomas Woods famously said, if we truly were a white supremacist society, being called a white supremacist would be a badge of honor, not a professional death sentence. When you look at median U.S. household income, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, here are the uh, selected ethnic groups from the year 2018 that have a higher U.S. household income than whites. Indian Americans, Taiwanese Americans, Chinese Americans, Japanese, Pakistani, Filipino, Indonesian, Korean, Cambodian, Hmong, and Vietnamese Americans all have higher median incomes than whites. Whites. 
So that is another example of a significant disparity that does not prove discrimination at all. There's certainly a selection process with uh, the immigration system. People who tend to come here tend to be more ambitious. Once they get in, they want to work extra hard and take advantage of the opportunity. Tons of totally reasonable explanations, according to uh, Black Enterprise and uh, Black Digital Media Brand. The Nielsen research finds that the median household income for foreign-born blacks is 30% higher than U.S.-born blacks. Now, if the issue was just skin color and racism, we would see foreign blacks and native blacks earning more or less the same, and we wouldn't really see a gap between them because it has nothing to do with hard work or skill or merit. It's just racism. But even when you look at uh, places like Pew Research, you'll find that U.S.-born blacks have a uh, household income that is around $33,500 annually, whereas black immigrants have a uh, annual median income uh, regarding household of $43,800 annually. So nothing in the racism conspiracy theory worldview could explain such disparities between whites and non-whites within America and uh, blacks in America that are born here versus blacks who have immigrated. However, the uh, concept of voluntarism and the conservative work hard and do what it takes to create value, that certainly does uh, fit uh, th this empirical evidence. Another place we see income inequality, not just between the genders, not just between the ages, not just between the races, but between the states within America. Turns out the uh, average income or the median income in Maryland is $87,000 a year, according to WorldPopulationView.com, whereas the average Mississippi income is $46,511 a year. These numbers are from uh, 2015. So if income inequality is something that we see virtually everywhere, of course we'd see it between the Races. It turns out we even see income inequality in families. When you look at the Baldwin family, Alec Baldwin has a net worth that is roughly 120 times that of his second wealthiest brother. Patricia Lee Lloyd is not someone you can really find much uh, information on, nor is Jeffrey Lee or Patricia Lofton. However, their sister, Oprah Winfrey, has a very high social status and a net worth of $3.5 billion. Oh heavens, an inequality. Barack Obama, twice elected president of America, mass murderer of people in the Middle East, has a net worth of $70 million. Just recently bought a home in Massachusetts, a nice mansion. His brother, George Obama, lives in the slums of Nairobi, and his claim to fame is he was once interviewed by Dinesh D'Souza. We see inequality everywhere, within families, between the sexes, between the races, in all countries since the beginning of time. The average Greek was not equal to Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. The average Roman was very unequal to Alexander the Great. The average Chinese person was very unequal to someone like Chairman Mao. The average Indian had a lot less social power than Mahatma Gandhi. Even in nature, we don't see an equal distribution of things like tornadoes or mountains or zebra uh, distribution or the likelihood that you'll get rain in a certain area. You don't see heat evenly distributed. All over the world, since the beginning of time and in the future, we should expect inequality between individuals and 
groups. Turns out there is a great deal of research on this, and it's loosely referred to as the Iron Law of Oligarchy. It asserts that rule by an elite or oligarchy is inevitable as an iron law within any democratic organization as part of the tactical and technical necessities of the organization. Mikkel's theory states that all complex organizations, regardless of how democratic they are when started, eventually develop into oligarchies. Mikkel's observed that since no sufficiently large and complex organization can function purely as a direct democracy, power within an organization will always get delegated to individuals within that group, elected or otherwise. The classic examples that uh, Michaels uses is the example of a union. So, you're part of the workers, and you're against the bourgeoisie, who are just a very few, uh, small amount of managers in the workplace, whereas you, the masses of workers, are going to form a union to counterbalance the unequal distribution of power and leverage within the uh, environment. So, of the, say, 5,000 employees, not all of them are going to go to the union meetings. Of those who actually go to the union meetings after a long day at work, not all of them are going to have great ideas, and not all of those people are going to be great at articulating those ideas, and not all of those people are going to be very persuasive at getting the union voters or the committee to accept their ideas and sell them uh, or uh, try to uh, convince the managers to embrace them. So what you end up with is Jimmy Hoffa and a few friends running the entire union on behalf of thousands of more or less disinterested people. But we see inequality everywhere again. What percentage of comedians are as funny as Chris Rock or Brian Regan? Or what percentage of bosses or engineers are as brilliant and innovative as Steve Jobs? A perfect example of inequality is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She has more institutional power and wealth than 99.9% of all of her constituents and all her supporters and all her followers. What percentage of singers can sing as good as Adele or uh, rap as good as Marshall Mathers? Jimmy Dore has millions and millions of more YouTube views than I do. This is a massive inequality but these oligarchies exist almost everywhere. A very small percentage of players in the NBA sell like 99% of the NBA jerseys. A very small amount of uh, musicians can sell out Wembley. It's all inequality everywhere since the beginning of time. Social justice advocates are not bringing anything new to the table when they discover this iron law of nature. The reason that inequality is constantly used as a source of uh, political campaigning is because, one, it's undefinable, and two, it is completely unachievable. The iron law of oligarchy is found everywhere in every society since the beginning of time, even in the most socialist organizations today. Very few socialists are as powerful as Hugo Chavez or Bernie Sanders. There's tons of inequality, so because it always exists— and no matter what you do, it's always going to exist. It can always be used as something to run on and uh, inflame the passions of the feeble-minded. So when it comes to the claim that the central claim of social justice, disparities are proof of discrimination, therefore we need a state to coercively intervene and uh, violently control interactions between consenting adults, we generally have three theories 
uh, two that are uh, competing with the social justice theory. Social justice, loosely referred to as critical theory, is that disparities are the result of discrimination. Genetic determinism, the oldest of these theories, is that disparities are uh, either the result of uh, God designing the races to be different or uh, the process of evolution that took place for thousands of years on different geographical areas yielded a different uh, type of person in each area, and that's why we see disparities between the races. Uh, however, there is a third approach that is not explicitly racist. It's referred to as culturalism. This is the claim that disparities are the result of different uh, groups embracing different cultural norms. This was summarized by Thomas Sowell in a book, Economic Facts and Fallacies. Sowell says, Many of the social or cultural differences between American blacks and American whites nationwide today were in antebellum times pointed out as differences between white southerners and white northerners. These include ways of talking, rates of crime and violence, children born out of wedlock, educational attainment, and economic initiative, or lack thereof. While only about one-third of the antebellum white population of the United States lived in the South, at least 90% of American blacks lived in the South on into the 20th century. In short, the great majority of blacks lived in a region with a culture that proved to be less productive and less peaceful for its inhabitants in general. Moreover, opportunities to move beyond that culture were more restricted for Blacks. Another term for this is institutional theory, summarized by Niall Ferguson in his book Civilization, The West and the Rest. He says, Institutions are, of course, in some sense the products of culture, but because they formalize a set of norms, institutions are often the things that keep a culture honest, determining how far it is conductive to good behavior rather than bad. To illustrate the point, the 20th century ran a series of experiments imposing quite different institutions on two sets of Germans in the West and East, two sets of Koreans in North and South, and two sets of Chinese inside and outside the People's Republic. The results were very striking, and the lesson crystal clear. If you take the same people with more or less the same culture and impose communist institutions on one group and capitalist institutions on another, almost immediately there will be a divergence in the way they behave. Other examples used by Seoul would be uh, England was once the most prosperous uh, industrial nation on the planet in the uh, late 1700s through the 1800s. However, before that, uh, Greece and Italy, during the days of the Roman Empire or Alexander uh, the Great, the beautiful buildings of Athens, the brilliance of Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. Uh, e if you go even further back, Gr uh, Greece and Italy were far more prosperous than Britain. Then Britain was uh, far more prosperous later on. If just race was the explanation, we'd see all the races more or less stagnant and then moving at a similar pace, but we don't see uh, anything like that. If you look at the Japanese empire, relatively stagnant until uh, after the uh, Second World War. If you look at India, after embracing free market reforms in 1991, we saw a drastic uh, decrease in the overall poverty level. Uh, when Deng Xiaoping embraced a uh, much more free market approach to economics in China, we saw people uh, in China uh, increase in their overall standard of living. So the the problem is cultures and institutions, not race, not uh, gender, not uh, critical theory. 
One more note on uh, critical theory is uh, from Racism Didn't Cause the New Problems of Today from Wilfred Riley's book, Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About. He says, The Black Lives Matter movement alone has staged 2,406 major marches against racism during the past few years. However, any serious claim that contemporary or recent bigotry is the cause of phenomena, such as 75% black illegitimacy rate, founders on three rocks. First, these problems did not exist among blacks or anyone else when racism was much worse. Two, these problems do not exist for successful dark-skinned African and Asian immigrants to the United States. And three, many or most such problems do exist among poor whites, perhaps the most genuinely neglected group in America, to roughly the same extent that they do among blacks. Another book promoting the idea of culturalism or institutional theory is Civil Rights, Rhetoric, or Reality by Thomas Sowell. He says, Japanese immigrants to the United States also encountered persistent and escalating discrimination, culminating in their mass internment during World War II. But by 1959, they had about equaled the income of whites. And by 1969, Japanese-American families were earning nearly one-third higher incomes than the average American family. Seoul also looked at the concept of discrimination and affirmative action in this book, saying, But the number of blacks in professional, technical, and other high-level occupations more than doubled in the decade preceding the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In other occupations, gains by blacks were greater during the 1940s when there was practically no civil rights legislation than during the 1950s. So what this does is it refutes the concept that the central determining factor in income disparities is discrimination. Sol says, in various skilled trades, the income of blacks relative to whites more than doubled in this time before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So you don't get to blame, uh, you don't get to um, say that uh, the, the reason we've seen an income increase uh, for blacks since the Civil Rights Act is because of the Civil Rights Act, because this was a trend that was already going on beforehand. They do the same thing with child labor. Child labor's decreasing, then you get laws against it, it continues to decrease, and they blame it on the child labor laws. Uh, the classic example is uh, social justice advocates say, see, we need the Occupational Safety and Health Administration because after it was instituted, workplace deaths fell. The average annual workplace deaths fell. But they don't show you that uh, workplace deaths were falling at a faster rate before the implementation of these laws. Sol goes on saying, Affirmative action hiring pressures make it costly to have no minority employees, but continuing affirmative action pressures at the promotion and discharge phases also make it costly to have minority employees who do not work out well. The net effect is to increase the demand for highly qualified minority employees while decreasing the demand for less qualified minority employees or for those without a sufficient track record to reassure employers. Also, if these disparities were the result of discrimination, we would see a much greater disparity when there was much more discrimination. But in the book titled Race and Economics, How Much Can Be Explained on Discrimination, Dr. Walter E. Williams looked at the data on youth unemployment. Today, there is a significant disparity between black and white youth unemployment. So social justice advocates say, obviously, the disparity is the result 
of discrimination. However, Walter Williams looked at the year 1948 and found that white youth unemployment was 10.2%, whereas black youth unemployment was 9.4%. So there was a smaller disparity when there was more racism. So critical theory does not explain these disparities. It also does not explain the blatant disparities we see in crime. Now, if we look at jails or those killed by police and say men are 50% of the population, yet 90% of those in prison, there must be a sexist problem. Turns out you're not looking at who's actually committing the crime. So according to the U.S. Census Bureau and Bureau of Justice Statistics, it's true that around 13% of Americans are black, according to the latest estimate from the U.S. Census Bureau. And yes, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, black offenders committed 52% of homicides recorded in the data between 1980 and 2008. Only 45% of the offenders were white. Homicide is a broader category than murder, but let's not split hairs. So it turns out uh, the reason we see this disparity in prison is a result of uh, criminality. It's also why we see uh, a higher percentage of whites in prison than Asians if you account for the uh, number of uh, people they are in the American population, referred to as a per capita metric. So one of the other things you can do to see if racism is a big issue is look at not just anecdotes, because there's anecdotes on both sides for almost every disagreement, but when it comes to uh, white on uh, black violence, there were, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, 59,778 cases uh, in the year 2018 of whites using violence against blacks. And this is totally unjustified, incompatible with libertarianism and the non-aggression principle. I'm completely against it. Not because the races are different, but because uh, it involves initiating violence. So to see if that is a really big issue, what you would want to do is look at the number of uh, black-on-white violence statistics, where uh, the black person initiated violence against the white person. Turns out uh, that year 2018, there were 547,948 cases. This is uh, referred to as the National Victimization Crime Survey. This was brought to my attention by uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, she was actually uh, sharing this meme of Elon Musk. Thank you, Representative Cortez. But again, the problem with murder is not the race or the gender of the murderers. The problem is initiating violence against peaceful people, regardless of the race, regardless of the age in uh, most cases. Of course, uh, children can consent. But the same thing is done with lynchings. Uh, they assume that uh, one uh, person of a certain race enacts violence against another, and therefore that proves institutional racism. The Tuskegee Institute actually uh, provided these statistics for lynchings by state and race, 1882 to 1968. There were a total of 4,743 lynchings in America between 1882 and 1968. Roughly uh, 10,000 black homicides every year, but uh, let's look at uh, these lynchings that took place over uh, 80, 90-year uh, period. 3,446 were black victims, and this is just terrible. The vigilanteism usually is a result of people having a very high time preference, less likely to be rational, doesn't mean the person did nothing wrong and they did it to an innocent person, but we can uh, just call this an injustice. 
But left out of this uh, is the minority of victims who were white. There were 1,297. So we're just going to keep going back and forth, playing the race game forever until people uh, actually embrace uh, the concept of voluntarism or libertarianism as an actual approach to these issues. So what happened was the progressives saw that they were basically losing on all fronts in these issues. Ibram X. Kendi, um, Robin DiAngelo, Hannah Nicole Jones, all uh, made to look like fools in their comment sections on Twitter. So basically they all got together and decided we have to throw a Hail Mary because this racism narrative is just not holding up. So what a couple people said very loudly and confidently and a lot of other people repeated is that Donald Trump, the then president, got on TV today and he said Nazis and Klansmen are good people. He said that they're fine people. And this is the president of America. So this is just proof of discrimination, proof of white supremacy and institutional sexist racism. Um, obviously, uh, this is not something that happened. Uh, here is actually what uh, Trump said. Here's the transcript. Excuse me, they didn't put themselves down as neo-Nazis and you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and white nationalists because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists, okay? And the press has treated them absolutely unfairly. Now, in the other group also, you had some fine people, but you had some troublemakers. And you see them come with black outfits and with the helmets and with the baseball bats. You had a lot of bad people in that other group too. So the main lie was that Trump came out and said Nazis are fine people. However, this is another example of not getting to the root of the issue. If you're against Nazis... One, you could say well, what they mean is judging people based on skin color or an accident of birth like Judaism or something. Or you could actually be against national socialism in principle, which is the institutionalized aggression against private property and voluntary contracts between consenting adults. But because they don't oppose national socialism on principle, democratic socialists are uh, just no different. And one final note on the culturalism debate. This is from Dr. Wilfred Riley in the same book, Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About. He says, Rather than picking between two racialist sides and fighting for one or another, American citizens can simply begin telling the truth about race relations. There is no race war going on in the USA, and there is certainly no epidemic of white-on-black crime. In fact, interracial crimes on an annual basis have been consistently 75-85% to black-on-white for the past 30 years. More importantly, there is no horrifying epidemic of interracial crime of any variety because 84% of white murder victims and 93% of black murder victims are killed by a mundane member of their own race. We see constant media coverage of Barbecue Becky, Permit Patty, Carl Coop, Coop, Coupon Carl, and George Zimmerman, not because these people are everywhere, but because the corporate media have an agenda to push. We should stop taking this agenda seriously today. And for the third social justice lie, we have the homophobia conspiracy theory. This mainly got a lot of traction 
in June of 2016 when a man named Omar Mateen in Orlando, Florida entered the Pulse nightclub, murdered 49 people, injured 53, and held the rest hostage. Barack Obama came out after uh, this massacre and said, This was an attack on the LGBT community. Americans were targeted because we're a country that has learned to welcome everyone, no matter who you are or who you love, and hatred towards people because of sexual orientation, regardless of where it comes from, is a betrayal of what's best in us. Let's go to the other side of the aisle. Donald Trump came out and uh, commented on the Pulse nightclub massacre, saying, This is a very dark moment in America's history. A radical Islamic terrorist targeted the nightclub not only because he wanted to kill Americans, but in order to execute gay and lesbian citizens because of their sexual orientation. It's a strike at the heart and soul of who we are as a nation. It's an assault on the ability of free people to live their lives, love who they want, and express their identity. So the uh, sitting president, who was a Democrat, said this was about uh, hatred of homosexuals or the LGBT community. The uh, leading Republican candidate also said it at the time because both of them have embraced the social justice worldview that most professors, most people in Hollywood, and uh, most corporations have also embraced. One of the ways you can falsify this theory uh, is when you're looking at an act of terrorism, realize that the goal of terrorism is not to... Uh, minimize a message, but to actually amplify the existence of your message in hopes of drawing more attention to your cause. So what we can do is look at Omar Mateen's 911 phone call when he was inside the Pulse nightclub, see what he said. We'd be looking for something like uh, homosexuality needs to be illegal, the Quran says so, I'm going to keep doing this, more of us are going to do this. That's what we would expect to see. This is how we can actually use the science that the pro-science social justice advocates are always telling us to use. So let's go through the 911 call and uh, see if uh, there's anything that stands out to us as a potential motive for Omar Mateen. Omar Mateen says, you have to tell America to stop bombing Syria and Iraq. They are killing a lot of innocent people. What am I to do here when my people are getting killed over there? You get what I'm saying? You need to stop the U.S. airstrikes. Tell the government to stop bombing. They are killing too many children. They are killing too many women. Okay? I feel the pain of the people getting killed in Syria and Iraq. They need to stop bombing Syria and Iraq. The U.S. is collaborating with Russia... And they are killing innocent women and children, okay? The airstrikes need to stop and stop collaborating with Russia, okay? The fucking, the airstrikes need to stop. You see? Now you feel. Now you feel how it is. Now you feel how it is. So clearly, this was a blowback as a result of government uh, intervention in Iraq and Syria. Turns out when you kill a bunch of civilians, the uh, surviving civilians don't exactly like that very much. Far from being a deranged lunatic, these airstrikes actually did uh, take place. If you look at the Council on Foreign Relations website, they uh, measured U.S. bombs dropped in 2016, the year of this atrocity. Syria, 12,192 bombs. Iraq, 12,095 bombs. Afghanistan, 1,300. Libya, 496. Yemen, 35. Somalia, 14. Pakistan, 3. In total, in the year 2016 alone, the U.S. government dropped... 
26,172 bombs. This is the terrorist organization that we need to be very afraid of. See, it's really immoral for people to walk inside the Capitol building without a permission slip and uh, lift up uh, Nancy Pelosi's podium and then uh, sit on her desk. That's inherently evil. Dropping 26,172 bombs, killing thousands of civilians. Well, that's just, that's just a policy. So again, we see social justice advocacy when they could have had the exact moment to say, this is what we're about. We're about equality and the greatest inequality is when some people end the lives of others. We're against exploitation, and murder is the worst form of exploitation. Turns out, even when you look into these things, far from being uh, defensive, The Intercept actually did some research on this, and uh, they found that during one five-month period of the operation, according to uh, documents, nearly 90% of the people killed in airstrikes were not the intended target. In Yemen and Somalia, where the U.S. has far more limited intelligence capabilities to confirm the people killed are the intended targets, the equivalent ratios may be much worse than 90%. And also, to qualify as a intended target, they basically play six degrees from Osama bin Laden, and they don't count any military-aged male, which is any man 16 years or older. Here's another example. This is explicit sexism. Killing men 16 and older, that's okay. But women 16 and older, well, that's not necessarily okay. But the solution is not the social justice approach, or else we'd just have to keep killing women uh, at the same rate, and then we'd have gender equality. But that doesn't get to the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is initiating violence against peaceful people. One more thing on the homophobia myth. In order to look at which group is exploiting who, you can actually look at uh, the number of violent incidents. So the main incident that they use is this Pulse nightclub massacre, and it's based on a complete myth. It was a result of uh, blowback uh, terrorism, nothing to do with hatred of homosexuals. But there are a great deal of examples of gay on straight violence. Uh, For example, Time Magazine The Boy Scouts' sex abuse was worse than anyone knew, June 1st, 2019. Between 1944 and 2016, at least 7,800 suspected assailants sexually abused uh, 12,254 boys in the Boy Scouts. NBC News, almost 1,700 priests and clergy accused of sex abuses are unsupervised. That was from NBC, October of 2019, Associated Press, 2023. More than 450 Catholic clergy in Illinois sexually abused nearly 2,000 children since 1950. Public Broadcasting Station, 2023. More than 150 Catholic priests sexually abused over 600 children. New York Times, 2023. More than 450 credibly accused child sex abusers have ministered in the Catholic Church in Illinois over almost seven decades. Now, we could look at this and say, look at what the gays are doing to us straights, or we can actually have a principled approach. We can actually approach this through the lens of violence versus voluntarism, people who achieve things peacefully versus people who initiate violence. The violence initiators would be the rapists, the murderers, the slavers, the kidnappers— and those who do so with legal sanction under the guise of war, taxation, military conscription, or regulation. So, because social justice is so evil, 
and divisive. There's plenty of reasons that Americans can come together and find a sense of pride, uh, knowing that uh, the Wright brothers were American, a couple of uh, bicycle shop owners, giving the world access to air travel. Henry Ford, while he didn't uh, invent the automobile, his uh, process of assembly made the automobile much cheaper than it otherwise would have been. And because of competition, the price drastically fell. So not only kings, queens, and politicians had access to such a thing. Same with cell phones. Guys like Cornelius Vanderbilt giving human beings access to uh, steamship travel and railroad. Andrew Carnegie drastically decreasing the price of steel, which makes everything you use cheaper than it otherwise would be. This is America making the poor masses of the world much wealthier than they otherwise would have been. Steve Jobs giving the world the iPhone. Another great American, Jeff Bezos, giving us Amazon, which has given more poor people access to products and services they never could have imagined. The existence of YouTube, and more importantly, Odyssey.com. Guys like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. ushering in a uh, principled way to treat people based on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. I hope the uh, importance of this message uh, is uh, real clear. I hate to see so many people divided over fake, arbitrary, temporary issues and then just move on to other ones. I'm hoping the actual division between violence and voluntarism is something uh, people will choose to embrace. Thank you for listening to Keith and I Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute.